I think that a lot of people do know some Aboriginal people that just don't realise it. You look at my mum, she's English. You look at my dad, he's Aboriginal. And look at me, I'm a bit in between. <laughs> I haven't got the flat nose anymore. I sometimes wish I did. You know, just because I'm Aboriginal doesn't mean I have a flag tattooed to my forehead. Like most of them call me Auntie Lynn, and I'm happy to be their auntie, even though that I'm not. Because I am Aboriginal because of my DNA, not because of my lingo. I am Aboriginal because of my DNA, not because of my lingo. Meet the Mob, a podcast from 1233 ABC Newcastle with Jill Emerson. Subscribe at abc.net.au slash Newcastle. I'm a washed up pensioner now. I'm very old. <laughs> no, I'm 37 now. Look, many moons ago, yeah, I, I enjoyed playing football. I loved it. But I suppose the difference to me is that you know, a lot of people took rugby league as their job, as their profession. I took rugby league as something that I loved doing, something that I had fun doing and my look on professional sport was different to other people I suppose and that's probably what separates the Indigenous players from the non-Indigenous on our skill and our speed and all the things that we have in our, in our repertoire and um, you know, Aboriginal players see it as fun and doing crazy things and trying to be the first to do whatever. And that's probably why we're such elite athletes in the sporting world across all codes of sport. Well, the Newcastle Knights legend, Andrew Johns, did describe you as the most naturally talented player he'd ever lined up alongside. So that resonates with exactly what you're describing, a sort of more broad, you know, physical and sporting capacity. Take me back to those times when you were playing there with Joey Johns. Yeah, look, I'll take you back further, actually. I remember when I signed... When I was living in Tinga, population of 500 in the northwest, 25 kilometres outside of Inverell. Some of the oldest of seven kids, raised in a three bedroom housing commission house with mum and dad. So at this stage, I was a sprinter, so I used to run 100 metres in 11 seconds flat on grass and 10.94 seconds with spikes on a track. So I went to America, Mexico, and Canada for the World School um, Youth Olympics back in high school. So through my speed, I was really good athlete, so I did a lot of sports, basketball and league. And I mean, My first game of rugby league, I played, I was 10, I played under 12s, I scored seven tries. So from that day, I just loved playing rugby league ever since. How did you get to the Knights uh, to be playing alongside Andrew Johns? I'm sure it's a history that many people already know here, but, but I don't. Yeah, so in year six in primary school, I made the New South Wales under 12s rugby league team to play in Canberra. And then from there, I always played my age group, but I always played my age group in two or three grades above. So when I was playing under 12s, I played 14s and 16s as a 12-year-old. So I was always well ahead of my years when it comes to skill and speed. Because I used to sleep with the football, take it to school, everything, you know? Everything. Fo- football gave me hope for a better life, which it did, you know? I went to 21 countries through rugby league. And from there I played under C- uh, under 17s for City, New South Wales... But the age of 14, the Newcastle Knights come to Tinga and signed me up, and I signed a three-year school scholarship to come down to Newcastle. And part of their selling point to get Owen Craig into Newcastle was they wanted me to meet the two of these young stars coming up. So the first one was Matthew Johns. So Matthew Johns rocks up in an old white Ford Falcon. The doors didn't open, so they jumped through the window. Beyond him comes Andrew Johns in a red little red Ford Laser, like terrible little car, and a little chubby little blokes, they're like, oh, these are the future of the Knights, these are the stars, this is why you want to sign, and I met them when I was 14, 15, you know, and these boys were like, in their late teens, early 20s, you know, and so I signed, and after that I met the Chief, Paul Arrigan, and they're the only three blokes I really met, so I come down. You were convinced by them, though? 
they convinced you? Yeah, well, see, I, didn't want to, I was at the Roosters down there, but I didn't want to stay in Sydney because it was too big of a place. But I thought, if I got homesick in Newcastle, I can either get the bus or train straight home because I knew where Broadmeadow train station was. And, yeah, and I was surrounded by a lot of beaches and had that country atmosphere here, you know. So this was perfect? Perfect for me. Perfect for me. But my cousins, Nathan Blacklock and PJ Ellis and Preston Campbell, they went to the Roosters and Preston went to Gold Coast. So I come here. But I was the f- I'm the youngest out of a lot of them, but I was the first one to leave. So I lived with a non-Indigenous family out of Belmont for a little while. But before I moved in with them, I lived with Maddie Johns only for a couple of weeks. How was that? that was, yeah, it was good. Good living with Maddie. And then when I bought my first house, it was around the corner from Joey. So I saw a fair bit of Joey growing up for the ranks, you know. And So you did really well. As a young man, you you said you bought your own house or you were in a car? No, I bought my first house when I was 17. Uh, I bought my first, first car when I was 17. I didn't even have a learner's licence to have a car. So I sat in the garage for a while and my mates were driving and they had a licence. And, yeah, I was just, you know, like travelling all over Australia and overseas playing rugby league, you know. And I debuted in Year 10 in St Mary's. So I had my own footy cards in Year 10. So that was crazy, signing, signing friends and school kids and principals and school teachers' footy cards. Do you still have any of them? Yeah, I've collected them and given them to my young bloke. Um, so he's got them down in Sydney there, and um, he always notices how Dad's changed in physique. <laughs> a few extra Ks? Yeah, not much, just a little. <laughs> <laughs> Owen Craigie on 12.33, ABC Newcastle. It stopped somewhere along the line. The big grade football stopped, yeah. and I understand so did the money. Yeah, yeah. So what happened was, during my time as a rugby league player, I developed a gambling addiction, and at the time I, I blew close to $1.5 million, and I you know, I had relationship troubles there with previous partners, and I'm not saying it's their fault, you know, and uh, we were all young once and made a lot of mistakes, and, and that was me. Every mistake to be made in a book, I made them. Or if not, I created some of them, you know, and... Um, but I've learned a lot from that. I'm now married with, you know, with three kids and two beautiful kids and my now wife, Renee, and um, I'm keeping life simple. But at the time, you know, like I was the youngest to debut for the Knights at Winter Grand Final, and to be a part of that journey is, is amazing. People play their whole career in rugby league and don't even score a try, let alone win a premiership. But, I, you know, I scored close to 70 tries and won a premiership, you know, and played alongside the likes of... Giddley and Badiris and the Johns Brothers and Albert and Robbie O'Davis and the list goes on, you know. And you must have loved it. Oh, look, I felt like I was part of a rock band, you know. You'd rock up to towns and here's this young schoolboy jumping off the last one to get off the bus and collecting bags for these older boys and, you know, they're, they're, they're the biggest names in rugby league in the world. Was your family proud of you? Yeah, family was proud of me, you know, and a lot of people always used to say, oh, how'd you do it? And I remember, you know, when I was a kid growing up, Dad told me in the community, son, you've got to be two, three times better than the next bloke. You have to be to make it, you know. And every day for the next couple of years when I was cutting wood and washing up, my dad would just drill me, drill me and drill me in the head and say, son, in two, three years you, you're going to play, you know, professional rugby league. And I used to doubt myself. And then after a while he drilled it in my head that much, I actually believed it. You said your mum was from Tinga. Was dad from there too? No, dad's from Maureen. So dad grew back over in Maureen back in the old Calabar days where the berm gate on the mission had come up and down and then he moved from there down to the row, 10 Maud Street at the row, and he had top camp, middle camp, and bottom camp, and Dad grew up down bottom camp mission, and actually come back down the weekend, actually took my kids out there to see it all. And What's it like to show a mission uh, to your kids? Yeah, well, funny, not, a lot of Aboriginal people still live on missions, you know, and it's a part of everyday life for a lot of Aboriginal people growing up on missions, and it's no different than anywhere else, but, you know, there's a lot of problems out there with drugs and alcohol and 
other things that affect the communities and uh, it's sad, very sad, but there's not much, you know, that you can really do, you know what I mean? It's, it's a generational thing that needs to be changed, I suppose. Will time lead to change? Time will lead to change because you look back 50 years ago, we're a lot, were, we're a lot more, you know, in a better position than we were 50 years ago. But in saying that, every community is different. Depending on where you live is depending on what you receive and what you get. For example, the most richest soil in Australia is in the Kimberleys, but yet they're the most disadvantaged community in all of Australia. Do you know what I mean? And living on the east coast here, we've still got people living in really bad conditions. And a lot of people say, oh, we need to invest overseas and look at the third world countries. Well, our Aboriginal people in Australia, we live in fourth and fifth world conditions today, in 2015. There's still a lot that needs to be done, but we're progressing slowly, but hopefully over time things will change. What does it mean to you to be Aboriginal, Alan? It means everything to me. Without my identity, I'm nothing. I'm nobody. You know, as soon as I drive out of Newcastle and I go back to my country, I think you know, I feel so at ease. I, ease. I love the smell of the bush. I love when it rains because it reminds me when I used to go hunting. You know, I just love seeing me, me pop. He's still alive. He's 77 now and teaching my kids, his great-grandchildren, about the bush and how to catch porcupines and guanas and go hunting. And He has some good stories. Good stories and good teachings, you know, and they're, they're valuable to us, you know what I mean? Like, a lot of people believe in the Catholic religion or Allah. Like, we believe in the land, we believe in our culture, we believe in our people. That's why we've survived for these thousands of years. I originally met you at a karaoke night uh, in Newcastle. I got up on the stage. I don't remember you getting up and having a sing. Did you eventually? Well, Columbia Records don't allow me to sing at karaoke's. <laughs> but you heard have seen me do the moonwalk in the corner a few times. <laughs> so you didn't get up and sing? No, I didn't get up and sing. No, not at all. It's a great night out, though, isn't it? Oh, it's a great night out. You know, it's, um, you get to engage with the community and for more walks of life and people have a, a few quiet drinks and sing songs and be happy and joyful. And then there's the lucky door prize of those emu eggs uh, decorated and painted with, uh, you know, rugby league team colours on them. Yeah, they're amazing. You know what I mean? Like, only Aboriginal people could do that, have that skill or knowledge how to do it. And if you don't know, it's actually harder to engrave in an emu egg than it is on a normal egg. So the skill that it takes to do that is unbelievable. But only certain Aboriginal people can do that. Not every Aboriginal people can do that. Just like not every Aboriginal person can throw a boomerang or spear or play a didgeridoo. They're required skills within your communities. I didn't know that. Yeah. Karaoke nights aside, what else do you do for fun? I'll go home now with my, with my young kids, Gabba Gamda, Tinga and Nimparil and take them home. But what I do for fun now, I, you know, I'll go mud crabbing in Newcastle and take the kids to Redhead Beach and take the bug, pug dog up there. But my life now evolves around work and, and my kids and what they're trying to do now, you know, and... We're going on a family holiday to Fiji in November, so all my time now is where it should be, which is invested in family. Do you have any regrets about your life? Look, I can sit here and I can tell you a million regrets, but at the end of the day, the beauty about all my regrets and all my mistakes is it's made me the person I am today. And you're pretty happy? I can't complain. You know, I've buried a lot of my family and cousins over the last couple of years, under the age of 30, under the age of 40, you know, that are passed away from liver and kidney failure, diabetes, poor health and alcohol and drug abuse. So I'm lucky. I might not have the money that I used to have before, but I've got the knowledge to teach my kids not to make the same mistakes, have a better life. Good luck with that, Owen, and thanks for spending some time with me on Meet the Mob. 
No worries. And, uh, yeah, shout out to everyone out there and see you at the next karaoke. You've been listening to a 12.33 ABC Newcastle podcast. For more, visit our website at abc.net.au slash newcastle.